I think that for change to happen on these kinds of things, people have to believe that it's possible and people have to believe that there is a stake in it for them. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. If you would like to support episodes like this being made, just check out my Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash halfhourintern. Anything that you could do to help would be just so greatly appreciated and help keep episodes like this being made. So in today's episode, we are exploring the path of being a foreign aid advisor. So this is a really interesting episode and a kind of deeply philosophical episode, if you will. So we'll talk a little bit about what it is that Sean exactly does for a living, but a lot of the episode will be spent talking about um, almost like the conflict of interest of being a for-profit company that does foreign aid as opposed to a nonprofit and And on the flip side of that, um, some of the pros of being a for-profit company that is doing foreign aid as opposed to a nonprofit company. And later on in the episode, we'll dig deeper into just the overall big issue of, is foreign aid even working? Um, Is uh, these millions and billions of dollars being spent really going to good use? Are we we really helping people out? So um, without further ado, here is Foreign Aid Advisor. Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. So I'm sure I probably just totally butchered explaining what it is that you do for a living in the intro that I made. (laughs) So why don't you go ahead and tell us in your own words what it is that your company does, first of all, and then what it is that you do specifically for that company? Yeah, sure thing. Um, So I work for an international development consulting company. Um, and what we do is implement international development projects um, all over the world, particularly in um, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, South America, South Asia, um, that are, uh, if you don't know the term international development, it's, it's basically projects that are intended to um, uh, alleviate poverty or improved health outcomes or educational outcomes, things like that. Um, and these, these projects are funded by uh, uh, developed country governments, such as the UK or the United States or um, Australia. And, uh, and we implement those projects on, on behalf of those governments. Um, and my role on uh, these projects is monitoring and evaluation. Uh, I typically provide um, some specialist kind of outside uh, insight into um, how a project can um, think about how it wants to structure what it does and what success looks like, what failure looks like, um, how exactly we're going to report um, to the the organization that's given us this money on how things are going and, and you know, if we need to change something, why that is. Um, so I help think about those kinds of issues. And then there's a, you know, a big range of other people involved in different roles and with different responsibilities on these kinds of projects, um, that I can tell you more about as well, but that is, uh, that's my job. Cool. So I was really surprised when you wrote me and, and kind of explained this to me in your email, because I, and I'm sure most people don't 
I had I had no idea that that countries, uh, you know, developed countries like America are using third parties as well, like private companies to help with international aid. Um, we already had somebody yeah. on several months ago that worked in the Peace Corps. It's like most people know about the Peace Corps, especially obviously if you're in America. And it's like every country has so many like huge nonprofits and government programs that are trying to work for international aid. The concept of a of the government also paying a private company to help out with this is fascinating and something that i knew nothing about so why don't you tell us like why exactly would a government pay another organization to help out when they already are sending people down there anyways i I mean i think the main reason why uh the american government or any of these others um or the world bank it might be or anything like that um why they might want to use an organization like mine is because we tend to bring um, very, very specialized experience um, or very, very robust management capabilities that um, a government organization probably will not have in-house or will not have the capability um, uh, to do themselves. Um, for example, uh, I worked on a project in Nigeria that was focused on land reform and on giving people um, a title to their land that you know proves their ownership and that they could take to the bank if they wanted to use uh, that um, that land as collateral for a loan or something like that. Um, but to do that, that, you need to know you need to have somebody that has like quite a lot of experience in um, something like land titling, land administration, um, uh, information technology systems that deal with land issues that can be managed by a government that probably has relatively low capacity. Um, and it, it isn't, it isn't cost effective for the American government to keep people like that around all the time, um, in case something comes up. So I think, I think our, our main offer is to assemble the right team of people and come up with, the right approach um, to doing something for the particular problem, and the American government is not is is not able um, due to resources and uh, um, other sort of constraints that they might have uh, to do that in all cases and in all countries. All right, so let's keep talking about the whole entire for profit nonprofit thing. So. Discuss some of like the benefits, I guess, that you think that you guys can provide as being a for-profit company, and then maybe some of the downsides, because it's, it's very probably difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around the idea of like human goals and trying to help people out and finance goals of big corporations not exactly seeing eye to eye. Um, so explain where there's actually some benefits of you guys being for profit and then where there, where you could see some considerations and issues being a for profit. I think that, you know, being a, a nonprofit company or a nonprofit organization means that you have to rely on donations, things like that. Um, you have to, uh, raise money and, and, you know, do lots of appeals and things like that. Um, uh, you're spending quite a bit of time, um, doing grants and proposals and things like that. Um, and we do quite a bit of business development, but I think our focus is more around, um, putting together some of these kinds of approaches and, and pitching things in, in more of a sort of consulting, like management consulting kind of way where we have certain tools and, um, put them forward. Um, 
I think... Right, like the same way that, let's say, Microsoft would hire a consulting company to come in on a project to help them streamline that project. They're not going to hire a consulting company to actually like make the next windows for them but they actually but you know they just need help for like okay what order should we be doing things in you know stuff like that um so you'll you'll like lay the framework in like the bigger picture for how a project should go down and then you specifically will kind of like analyze how well that that project went down yeah and, and to be honest i think that might be a good way of looking at a lot of what i what i've been saying already if you think of like if you think of the U.S. government or the U.S. Agency for International Development as Microsoft, and they are setting the agenda, and you know Windows is, um, we want to take a million people out of poverty or too many, you know, however many it is. I'm just pulling a number out of the sky, but um, by 2020 or 2030 or whatever. Um, or even more to the point, if we want to turn to one of the sustainable development goals or something like that and say, we want to achieve this target, um, then we need, we need to make projects happen and we need to get them on a set schedule and all of this sort of stuff. And they are assembling all of that into a big picture. And we are coming in and saying, okay, one of those issues is that, um, adolescent reproductive health is a problem and, uh, we we have done lots of these kinds of projects in the past, and um, we've learned from those experiences, and um, we're able to bring that knowledge, that institutional knowledge, and these networks of people and these systems to bear on that one problem. You know, and I, I guess if this were Windows, then maybe it's you know the start button doesn't work correctly, and we need somebody to figure out how to fix that. I don't know. Um, but that's, it's such a small component. It's such a drop in the bucket. Each one of these projects, even if they cost $50 million over five years or whatever the case may be, it's a drop in the bucket, but there is a larger picture that everyone is, is effectively working toward. And, and I, I think the distinction between us and nonprofits really is about being able to bring the, that kind of managerial outlook, um, and the kind of implementation, like hard implementation expertise uh, that other organizations might not. Like we're, we're not a policy advocacy organization, for example, like Oxfam might be um, producing commercials or something like that where they're talking about um, relief for uh, um, internally displaced people or refugees in, in uh, coming out of Syria or something like that. And we might deal with those issues in terms of uh, implementing a project that um, uh, that deals with those kinds of issues. Um, but we're not trying to like we're not necessarily trying to raise awareness in the general public about something like that. That's another uh, difference between us. So, Sean, are you guys held to certain standards when you're helping out these countries? Obviously, they lay out a goal before you. If that goal is not hit, does that impact? the money that you guys get? Does it impact future opportunities for you? That's a big part of my job in the sense that at the start of a project, we would come up with a framework of what results would look like, essentially the kinds of deliverables that we're going to, um, we're going to create, uh, through our work. Um, the, the kind of changes in the environment or in the context uh, amongst the, the different people that we're trying to reach. So, um, you know, it might be smaller, smaller farmers in um, uh, northern Nigeria doing something a bit differently. Um, and as a result of them doing that thing differently, uh, there is impact. So 
for example, if um, if the issue is that uh, smallholder farmers are not using uh, uh, like what is internationally regarded as the best standard of agricultural practice because they they just don't have the, the skills, then our deliverable might be okay. We will train you in those skills, and we'll link you up with people who who have that knowledge, or um, we'll link you up with farmers in uh, another area in the same country or in another country or something like that who can share that knowledge and share that experience. Then as a result, they use those, um, they use those practices on their own farms and then they, they have higher yields in whatever crop it is that they grow and they sell it in the market and they make more money because they had more to sell in the first place. If we receive money from, uh, speaking from the experience of the British government, uh, with the department for international development, um, DFID will, will regularly assess whether or not those things are on track. You know, on an annual basis, we'll set milestones of whether or not those kinds of indicators are being met. And if we aren't meeting them, particularly the ones at the start of that of that example around the kind of training or networking or anything like that, because those are the things that we produce, you know, that's, that's like a direct result of what we do. Um, if we're not doing that, then clearly something is wrong. We're not spending money in the right ways and we need to either rethink or if, if things are just going like catastrophically wrong or if they're not just not going well over a prolonged span of time, say a year or two, then um, DFID could shut our program down. Um, or put us into remedial measures or something and then shut us down. And obviously that means in the scope of that one project, you lose money, but then there's a whole reputational risk around, will we be able to operate in that country again? Or, you know, will we have a hard time operating in a different country? So, you know, thankfully in the time that I've, um, that I've been doing this kind of thing. I haven't come across too many projects in the places that I work in that, um, that ended up being shut down. Uh, you know, we don't have projects shut, get shut down as, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, so I, I think that's relatively rare, but it's, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, is kind of a legitimate threat on the part of, uh, of a donor organization to keep that performance high and, and keep everyone honest here about what it is we're doing and, um, how successful it is. Yeah. Which is really good. So uh, that's, I guess kind of where I was hoping you would go with that question, because I think a lot of people would think, and I love the way that you finished it off saying like, you know, it kind of keeps everything honest. There is a certain amount of necessary honesty with a for-profit company that you just have to have. Um, Like you, if you are not performing, you are going to go out of business and that is all there is to it. Um, and like here in America, I don't know how it is in the UK where you're at, but like everyone hates going to the DMV. Like, why do people hate going to the DMV? Because it is like the most, uh, I just like horrible, slow experience in the world. And why is it allowed to be that way? Because it's a government institution and they don't have to do well. Like they just don't have to, who cares if they do well or not, they're going to be here tomorrow and they're going to be here next year. And they're going to be here five years from now. (laughs) And the fact that you gave them one star on Yelp, that don't matter because there ain't no competition and they're going to get your money no matter what, either way. And I think it's important for people to remember that those same principles can absolutely still be in effect 
for doing things for good. And it's something that yeah. I didn't really think about at first when I got your email, but then the more that I thought about it, I was like, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense having some for-profit companies to help out with this stuff because there's a certain about amount of um, agility and mm. uh, just yeah like hard work that can get brought to the table when you know okay if we don't like nail everything right now we might not have a job two years from now um and people in in uh a government funded uh like a just a, a government aid organization don't have to worry about that for the most part and people at nonprofits there's obviously the issue of like okay if we're doing so bad that our donors will stop donating but but yeah, still it's yeah. not um i don't know it's just um it's a little bit different so and and by the way like to the point earlier what we were saying um about the benefits of something like a peace corps um each thing has its place and each thing is very necessary and each thing is great. So I don't mean to say any of that to um, belittle nonprofits or to belittle government institutions or organizations. But I, I, in that same regard, I don't think that anyone should look negatively upon or belittle a for-profit company doing international work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's kind of the main, the main point I'm trying to get across in all of my rambling is, is just that, um, that there is, that there are kind of natural fits on some of these things. And I think we try to bring that agility and we try to bring that kind of international, like truly international on the ground perspective from having implemented projects in all kinds of contexts and environments, some really, really chaotic and some quite stable and, uh, some involving, you know, real like business interests, for example, and others involving, you know, more sort of political aspects of these kinds of things. And now I think we're also trying to bring in some of that um, technical expertise, like in-house. But part of our offer really is to find the people with technical expertise. And that might be, you know, some guy who, you know, worked in, um, a business registration company or a business registration organization in the U S for 30 years, or it might be, um, someone who's been working at save the children on gender-based violence issues for the last 15 years, you know, and that person brings specialist knowledge, um, to bear on a, a problem that, USAID or DFID have identified as being important and and being something that we need to address. So let's talk about development aid more specifically and like your perspective on it, since you have um, a lot of experience with it and you work with it every single day. So there's a lot of uh, like argument in in around the world of development aid and whether or not it works, whether or not it's something that we should be doing. And like critics of it would cite examples of like great first world countries now or, or great developed countries now that you know receive no aid when they were coming up. Um, yeah. And 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 it kind of it it behooves you not to be given aid because you you need to find your own way and then you don't owe anything back to anybody else and um, nobody has a say in what you're doing and whatever else. Um, and critics would also, I guess, point to the fact of like we've been giving millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to these developing countries for decades, you know, and mm-hmm. how come nothing has happened yet if something was going to happen. Um, there's, I know lots of studies done on the other side that are showing like, 
no, things actually are starting to happen. These people are healthier. Kids are living longer. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know whatever else. I'm not like an expert in that realm. But anyways, somebody who is a little bit more of an expert in that realm, what do you think about the the whole concept of development aid and whether or not it's something that can work and whether or not, more importantly, it's something that we should be doing? Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think... I can, I sympathize with the question in a way because, you know, we're living in difficult economic times. Um, you know, the recession of 2008, 2009, it's not that long ago and people might be feeling like it would be nice to have a little bit of that money in their pocket rather than going, you know, to someplace else to some, you know, faceless project or something like that. You know, I can understand that. And, and, and maybe if not that, then, you know, they want to make sure that that money is actually doing something. Um, I think to take the broad lens, if you were to look at some of the uh, some of those kinds of statistics that you had that you had mentioned um, in terms of the results of the Millennium Development Goals, for example, that deal with some of those kinds of things like kids going to school and uh, maternal mortality and, and that kind of thing. Um, th- there have been positive results in many, many cases. In some cases, there haven't. You know, in, so- in some cases, um, countries have gone backward on a lot of these things. Syria, they were the first one coming to my mind, but obviously a massive civil war over, you know, four year period, um, five years, I guess, uh, is, is obviously going to have a backward effect on, um, whether or not kids can go to school or, you know, things like that. Um, but I would say that the, the, across the spectrum, uh, these kinds of metrics are improving in lots of different places. Now, is that down to um, international development projects? Uh, is that down to like the you know one of the projects that I work on? Absolutely not. You know what I mean? I, I think in my business we talk a lot about the small wins. You know what I mean? We're, we're talking a lot about what we are contributing to, and we're talking about the defined results that we're looking for in this one case. And that is a drop in the bucket to the larger, you know, the larger goal that we're all trying to achieve here, you know? Um, but I think that, uh, uh, there are other forces at play and development is increasingly trying to align to those forces. For example, there's a lot of, um, discussion in, uh, in recent years about, um, governments and how how if if government is inclusive and if people are able to have a say in their government then they are able to share in the growth you know share in the wealth that is produced through government and commerce and that kind of thing uh, and there is a, a synergy there that um that is you know really important and that is the kind of base on which all country prosperity um, happens, you know, uh, if if countries are more democratic and and more people are able to share in the spoils of um, their country and their their economy, then more people are or fewer people are in poverty, and uh, people are able to do the things that they want to do and use their the resources, the human capital and the financial capital to do the things that they want to do. Now that that whole debate is so much broader than any one or any like 200, you know, development projects that happen in a particular country. You know, if, 
um, for all the good work that that we are doing in um, Zimbabwe, for example, if you know if the Zimbabwean government falls apart and uh, you know there's a coup or something like that, I'm not saying that that's going to happen anytime soon necessarily. But if something like that were to happen, it would reset so much of what we have done because that is such a you know, a central force. So, so I think what increasingly development is trying to do is build up some of those, you know, to reinforce some of those structures that academics and practitioners say lead to shared prosperity, you know, uh, prosperity, not just for rulers and so on and so forth. Um, but for, for people who, um, uh, who are at the other end of the spectrum as it were. Um, it's so also it, difficult and interesting. Like you and I were talking a little bit before the interview, and I we were talking about my honeymoon and, and, and an experience that I shared with you that I, that I feel like is really pertinent here is when I was in Japan for my honeymoon, you would not see a piece of trash anywhere. Like we were in Tokyo, and you don't even see like a piece of gum on the ground or on a wall or anything. It's like the cleanest place you've ever been. And Tokyo is the most populated city in the entire world, and. Here in America, like I live in San Francisco, and San Francisco, by the way, is one of the cleanest cities in all of of the United States, but there's still more trash around than there is in Tokyo, and yet yeah. there are signs everywhere about, like, do not litter, there's this fine, there's that fine, like, you'll be fined if you do mm-hmm. this, you'll be fined if you do that, and it's just, it's kind of an eye-opening experience of, like, you don't, you don't legislate good behavior, um, yeah, you need to like that needs to be decided upon culturally and how you shift the entire culture of a country. I don't know, because the reason yeah. that Japan is so clean is not because someone told them to be clean. The reason that they're so clean is because it's in their nature. It, it's it's in their soul. It's it's in their culture. Like they mm. have this huge sense of pride that a lot of other people don't have. And they also have a sense of shame about like, it's, it's embarrassing if someone sees me throw this on the ground and that's shameful. And why would I do that? And yeah. those sorts of thi- these, you know, I, I think a lot of times, like when we're trying to analyze, like what made something go down? I mean, that's kind of like a problem with, with big government, right. And like government mm-hmm. in general or whatever, um, or looking at correlation versus causation in a scientific study is like someone could go to Japan and be like, wow, they must have great laws here. And they must have so many laws like against yeah. littering or they must have. So- and it's like, no man, or, or, like or, it's horrible punishments or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like, no, like that's not how this works. Like yeah. you, you need people on a micro individual level to decide that we are going to be better than this that we are going to be a certain way um there's so much more like i'd like to talk about that and like and, 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 and issues and, and, in the world right now and like how oh, yeah. people need to decide that we're going to be better than than what we've been yeah i mean i i think that like like for example there's um like the example of bangladesh which has all of these laws and you know rules and procedures around like anti-corruption and transparency and like just the functioning of government, the provision of services, it's, you know, to the point where like they have stronger anti-corruption regulations and laws and, um, you know, just systems on paper than like most other countries, including many, many developed countries. Um, but there is no like respect for that essentially. 
um, because there are no, there are no enforcement mechanisms. There are no accountability mechanisms like that are rooted in citizen interest. And, you know, like the average person actually thinking that they can, can do something like that. So I, you know, I think that, I think that for change to happen on these kinds of things, people have to believe that it's possible and people have to yeah, have to definitely. believe that there is a stake in it for them. You know, to, to riff on the, the trash example a little bit, um, I lived in northern Nigeria for a while and there was trash all over the place everywhere in markets and uh, uh, just on the streets and driveways. And, you know, there are these um, bottles of water like they, they sell. It's not bottles of water. It's basically a bag of water um, that is quite a bit cheaper. It's maybe like... I don't know, one cent or five cents or something like that. It might've gone up by now, but, um, it's a lot cheaper than a bottle, which might be like five times that, but you see these bags after they've been, after they've drank the, the water uh, that they, you know, they just chuck those out. Essentially. They, there, there are no bins anywhere to, to throw these, these bags out. They just throw them on the curb or whatever. Um, and people just, you know, get on with their lives like that. Uh, and ultimately it's a big pollution problem. You know, these things break down and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I think people just feel like, well, no one's coming to collect this. Like, where am I going to put this anyway? So it may as well just be here. And I think, you know, then part of the, uh, project that I was working on was we were, we were trying to set up these agreements in marketplaces where like, if, um, if, the local government was going to collect taxes in that market, then that market wanted to receive a specific service back. You know, it might not need to be like the same cost for what they are paying, but they want to feel as though the money that they are giving to this local government is actually going to be used to benefit them and not just, you know, be siphoned off or, or whatever the case may be. So, you know, so one of the examples of the service that might be provided is, um, uh, cleaning up the market, you know, have somebody come in and sweep or having a bathroom or something like that, uh, that is cleaned regularly that people can use while they're in the market. And I think that that process then starts people thinking, okay, well, I shouldn't add to the problem by throwing this bag, uh, when I finish my water on the ground. Um, I should try and find a place to put it, you know, and the government needs to have, bins, you know, some trash cans in the area that can then, that those people can put the bag in and then someone collects it. And there's a system where all, you know, all of this, that whole process is part of a wider institutional arrangement that has to exist in order to have a functioning society. You know, I mean, uh, Tokyo and San Francisco and London and New York, uh, I mean, there's probably a varying scale of dirtiness there, but, uh, um, they all are able to get on with things because there is an expectation of the part of lots of different people to do what they're supposed to do. And I think maybe, maybe part of some of the projects that I work on is about getting that engine revving a little bit. Like if we can, in this one market, if we can make things a little bit smoother and we can set up these kinds of arrangements where people feel like I pay into something and I get out something, or I, I attend a meeting and I express my views about something and those views are going to be heard and they're going to be, you know, uh, listened to, 
um, then then that gets the cycle going, you know. And by the same token, we've got to work with government to make people think that make government officials, for example, feel that those kinds of contributions, financial or vocal or whatever the case may be, have value. And, you know, that system is uh, is useful from their perspective and is beneficial from their perspective, in addition to the kind of broader, you know, grander, more hopeful kind of picture. Um, so I think, you know, I think a lot of what my, it, it, not my role necessarily in all cases, but, you know, the kinds of people that I work with and the kinds of things that we're dealing with is about thinking about how all of these sorts of things are connected and how these behaviors interact with one another and where, you know, what are the points at which we can meaningfully intervene? You know, if it's, if it is around, you know, identifying people who, who feel as though they can go around this market and, uh, provide that particular service or something like that and help a government figure out a way to pay for that service using the tax that was collected or something like that. Like that is what we are trying to do. And I think that small piece, as I've said before, is that is a, such a unbelievable drop in the bucket. Um, but hopefully over the grand like glacial pace of all of this, we will see those kind of higher order results that we were talking about be achieved. Yeah, I think the the difficult thing for you, the difficult thing for progress, the difficult thing for everything is like if you use the analogy of of the parable in the Bible that ends with the like teaching a man to fish versus giving a man fish. It's like those are kind of the two things that we try to do is like teach people to fish or give them fish or both. We're going to give you some fish and we're going to teach you how to fish and then hope that you'll go out and fish because we just taught you how to fish. But the most important thing that there possibly is then is to make a man want to fish. Otherwise, yeah. like if that dude doesn't want to fish and you just taught him how to fish, it doesn't matter at all. And like that's like the trash example. Like if you uh, tell someone why they should throw things away and you give them trash cans, um, you've now kind of provided them with like the teaching you how to fish and, and the fishing part and, and the fish part with the trash cans. But if that person themselves does not want to throw away things in a trash can, even though there's a trash can right over there, well, then you're just going to have dirt on the ground. You're just going to have crap everywhere, like unless that person wants to and cares. And that analogy can be carried over into any any sort of of international development or any sort of development in general, you know, Um, that that aid without the desire is is kind of useless and. Obviously, if anybody knew how to uh, how to get people to want to do things, that <laughs> they'd be a billionaire. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard market that you're in, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, we're dealing with people, right? I mean, these these kinds of projects are are people driven, and people are affected by them. So we have to think about how they think, um, uh, how they, you know, how they interact with each other, how they. Uh, like uh, their skills, their knowledge about something or their ability to use those motivations or use those skills um, in the way that they want to, you know, like you're saying, I I think that's such an important question. Like, does somebody want to be a fisherman? Like who, why, why teach someone how to fish if they're actually like, I, I, I hate fish. Uh, I don't like the taste of them or whatever the case may be. Um, We, we need to think about, 
how to look at this from a different perspective and keeping that kind of people focus is a big part of my job because I, I think we're, we're trying to think about that visioning of, um, what are we trying, what's the problem and how are we going to solve it? Well, we have to solve it by working with these people and giving them the right knowledge. We've got to work with these people and change their perspective on this problem. And we've got to, you know, we ourselves can produce some things that can, you know, grease the wheels a little bit. Like if we produce some strategic research on this problem so that people know more about it and know that it actually affects quite a few people, something like that, doing all of that stuff, hopefully will then result in people interacting with each other in different ways, you know, selling something in a different way or, um, engaging with each other in a different way. And hopefully that engagement will lead to a higher order goal. You know, if, if there is a, a better functioning system for, uh, sanitation or something like that, as a result of, um, the government providing a system, that system in a better way, then, uh, then we've done our job, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm trying to think about what that, what that success looks like every step of the, uh, of the way there. Yeah, definitely, man. All right, Sean, let's go ahead and wind this thing down, man. Um, sure. let's go ahead and give some tips to people who wanted to get a job in development. So something that I think is really nice about this is that, um, one, I mean, you're a company, so I, I assume you offer like health insurance and, and some like nice perks like that, that yeah. maybe not all uh, nonprofits would. And the other thing is that for people that were interested in something like the Peace Corps, but maybe they're a little bit older or people um, who want to do something more long term, because Peace Corps is usually only, you know, 18 months or whatever it is. I mean, this is like a just a full time job that you have. So yeah. um, how how would somebody get a job in development like you have if they wanted to? So I think maybe there are three things. Um, the first is, well, maybe two, but uh, the first would be having a set of, of core skills that like you, you've identified a job that you think you might want to do in international development. And I would say that what I do is only one of a range of different things. And I've, I've touched on some of them, but you know, there are people with very, very specific technical experience. There are people that do more program management or operational type stuff, logistics, human resources, all that stuff. If any of that sounds interesting to you, then you need to find a way of getting the core, like the absolute essential skills in that. So if you are interested in sanitation systems or something like that, then you have to be able to bring that experience. So for me, it was doing research and getting the skills and experience in doing surveys, doing focus groups, all of that stuff, so that I could then go into a development context and say, these are the tools that are often used to evaluate development projects. Um, and I've, you know, I've never done this before, uh, but I, I know that I can, I can bring the same sort of experience to bear on this situation, even though it's in a different context. So once you've identified what you're looking to do, getting those kinds of core skills that probably are not going to come from university or coming from your master's degree or whatever the case may be, uh, doing that is really important. The second thing is languages, uh, which I think is um, pretty underestimated in the U.S. in particular. Um, I think a lot of a lot of countries, particularly in Africa and South Asia, um, use English as the official language. So if you're going into a capital city, then it's um, uh, 
it's pretty easy to get by in English. You know, most people can at least speak some of it. Um, if you're wanting to go to a Francophone country or a Spanish speaking country in South America or, uh, Mozambique speaks Portuguese, for example. So, um, those countries probably will not have a great foundation in English. So you're going to need to have one of those in order to do work in them. I wouldn't say that it's like impossible to get work. You know, there are plenty of countries like East Africa and Southern Africa that do not, uh, that, that use, or that do use, um, English as a, as an official language. So, you know, that's a huge portfolio right there, but having that diversity when you're just starting out makes you much more marketable. And I would say, pick one of those languages that is going to be, that is going to get you to, you know, the part of the world that is going to be the most interesting to you. If you want to work in Sierra Leone, if you want to work in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you have to learn French. Um, and I only speak English uh, in any, you know, real context like you and I are doing now. So that obviously limits me. So that's something that I, I continue to work on. And then finally, um, if you want to get into this business, um, international experience of, you know, actually going and visiting some of these places is really, really important. It's again, it's not impossible to get into this kind of work, um, without having done some of some of that kind of thing, but it makes it that much harder to demonstrate that you are interested in international development. If you haven't traveled now, travel is really, really expensive if you're doing it on your own. And I realize that plenty of people don't have that kind of those kinds of resources. Um, but if there are, you know, if you have the ability to do a volunteer program or study abroad program to a country that doing a study abroad to France is not going to help you get into international development. Doing a study abroad to Uganda or doing a volunteer uh, program in Rwanda or something like that, even if it's for two weeks, that's something that, that can, that you can hang your hat on and say, look, here's the evidence that I've done something like this. It, it, when, when somebody is like looking over your CV or your resume, I should say, um, if somebody's looking over your resume, I think the fundamental question is that they're asking whether or not this person is going to be able to manage and do the work that we're asking them to do if we send them to Uganda or Rwanda or whatever the case may be. Um, and if you don't have a language, uh, I mean, Uganda and Rwanda aren't good examples because they both use English as the official language. But if you're wanting to go to the Democratic Republic of the Congo and you are... Um, and you're only speaking English and you've never traveled before to a place like that, it's really hard for me or someone in my position to, you know, trust that you'll be able to handle it, even though you're, you know, you're certain that you are, but it's just really tough on paper. So getting that, that volunteer experience and having those skills that are very, very targeted for the particular role on a project and then having the language ability all says to someone, yeah, this, this, this is a safe pair of hands. You know, we can trust that this person is going to do a good job if we put them in, in the DRC or somewhere like that. Yeah, definitely, man. Dude, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for all this info. Uh, like I said, it was, it was like intriguing even getting your email and, and it's, it's really cool and good to know that this is an option, um, for people that they can like permanently work for a um like a normal for-profit company doing international aid um thank you for all the info thanks a lot for having me on 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did enjoy the episode, if you could leave a review on iTunes, it would be so appreciated and it would really help new people find the show, which would be a great thing for them, great thing for me. It would just be like a great thing for the whole world if you were to do that. So that would be so, so greatly appreciated. Also, applications are open to be a guest on Half Hour Interns. So if you are sitting there and thinking to yourself, man, I have got this super cool job I think it's worthy to talk about, or I do this super awesome hobby that people should know about, just go to halfhourintern.com and click on Submit Your Idea. And from there, you'll see a drop-down menu where you can send me an email to let me know about what you do and possibly end up on the show yourself. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening.